Gospel according to Luke, and turn with me to chapter 9. Sometimes it takes me a little bit to get my voice back so I can talk to you here. Uh, Luke chapter 9, we're entering kind of a transition this week uh, in Luke's Gospel. We're really beginning a long road to Jerusalem from verse 51 this morning of our text. It's really going to extend all the way to chapter 19 and verse 27. And we're going to be walking through some pretty rich portions of Scripture between here and there, even covering 21 of Luke's 27 parables, and 16 of which are going to be unique to the Gospel of Luke alone. So we have some some really nice ground to cover here. But you might even just put a little asterisk or a little line or make some sort of mark in your Bible right here next to verse 51, so as to help navigate your way through Luke when you come back to it and read it in the future, because this is really a major turning point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because over the last few weeks, we've been kind of looking at his ministry that's been happening in Galilee. He's been casting out demons and raising the dead and healing the sick, the sick and affirm. He's been performing many miracles, all done to confirm his gospel message of forgiveness of sin, and all done in Galilee. And just by way of reminder, Galilee is that region that sits to the north in northern Israel. If you can imagine a snowman, right, with three large balls of snow, the top one's going to be Galilee, and then the middle part of that body is going to be Samaria, the bottom part's going to be Judea. Now, there's obviously more regions around and above and below and all that sort of thing. But just to kind of give you a visual picture as to what we're talking about. Because the focus of Jesus' ministry up to this point has been pretty much at the top in Galilee. And uh, so he's going to be heading south to Judea, where lies the capital city of Jerusalem. That's where the temple is located, the center of religious worship, and the remains are still there today. And so from this point on, from verse 51 on, that's where we are headed. We're headed to Jerusalem. Jesus is headed there. From the very beginning of Luke, we've been kind of focusing on the coming of the Messiah, right? The angelic announcement, uh, Zacharias' prophecy when he proclaims that the Lord God of Israel has visited us and accomplished redemption, to Simeon's waiting at the temple and watching to be able to see the Lord's Christ, John the Baptist, his baptism of Jesus, and the one he said that he is not even fit to untie the thong of his sandals, all reaching to its peak at the transfiguration with the voice of the Father declaring, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. But now we're going to be focusing on Jesus' going. We're going to shift gears, if you will, and we're going to focus on his destiny to carry the very cross that he has already warned his disciples about. It's the very thing that he told him to let sink in your ears back in verse 44. And so we need to understand, number one, that this was always the plan of God. The cross wasn't some unfortunate accident. It wasn't a, well, I messed up with the Jews and the Old Testament law, now I've got to do cleanup and send Jesus to fix it. But it was always the predetermined and predestined plan of God for Jesus to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. I believe Acts 4.6 also confirms that. And we've had some very important things to understand here about the nature and character of God that we have to absolutely solidify in our mind about this. 
So I want to read our text this morning, and uh, we have before us, and see what the Lord has to say to us through his word. So if you're there in Luke chapter 9, we're starting in verse 51. If you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. God's holy word says this. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you for your word. We just pray uh, that you would take a mere man and be able to proclaim truth about your word. Lord, help us to uh, focus in on you. Help us, our minds to be uh, strengthened and encouraged. Help our hearts to be uh, lifted up and strengthened as well. That you are who you say you are. And that these things are absolutely true. Help us to learn from these things. And not just listen to them, but help us to do them as we walk out of here. God, we want to honor you this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If, you, uh, if someone that knows you pretty well were to pick some words to summarize your Christian life, what do you think they would say about you? Let me say that again. If someone that knows you pretty well were to pick some words to summarize your Christian life, what words do you think that they might say about you? What words would they use to describe you as a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, you might think, first of all, that they might speak fairly well of me, and they might say that I was, uh, I'm dedicated or a devoted, right? You're a devout follower of Christ. They might say that because you're smart, you know the Bible pretty well, you go to church regularly, all those sorts of Christian things. Or they might say, you know what, that, that guy is, and that lady, they're charitable. I mean, they are givers. I'm, they're a very giving person. So they might say that you're a charitable person, right? You help everyone you can. You give money when you can to people, and you even give it sometimes when they don't even ask. And so people might describe you as a charitable Christian. Or sometimes they might say the paradoxical statement that that person is a born-again Christian, Right? Christian as if you can be a Christian without being born again. Jesus very plainly teaches us in John chapter 3, between his interaction with Nicodemus, that you must be born again. But when most people say that that person is a born again Christian, what they're really trying to say to you is that you are really, really, really serious about your Christian faith. So you can't, saying someone's a born again Christian is kind of like an oxymoron. You can't be a Christian without being born again. Now, what about those people that really don't know you that well? And maybe they're kind of on the fringes of your social circles. People that you know well enough, and they probably know that you're a Christian, 
but, you know, say maybe like an ex-high school mate of yours, a business client, uh, someone you work kind of infrequently with, what words would they use to describe you as a Christian? Or would they even know that you're one? But what words or what virtues would they use to describe you? How many of us in this room immediately thought that one of the words that someone would use to describe me would be merciful? That's one merciful Christian. That's a merciful person. Because to say someone that has mercy is a word that is used to pay someone a very high compliment. Mercy is a word that is a a virtue that we unfortunately rarely hear of, even within Christian circles. But when we, and the entire world, when we see mercy on display, we marvel, do we not? When we see it demonstrated before our eyes, we just, we're in awe. It's like a comet that flashes across the sky briefly and occasionally, and we watch it and we're amazed at seeing that, but then it disappears. When we see mercy lived out in the public sphere, not only does the world take notice and stand stand in awe, but to be honest, we Christians do the same. For instance, on June 17th of this very year, a young man walked into a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he opened fire on a church prayer meeting and murdered nine people, including the pastor of that church. He did it in cold blood. It was heinous, senseless, and it was a violent act that disturbed our nation. But as the days went on, the killer was caught by the authorities, and the families of those victims displayed an incredible act of mercy that made headlines that equaled that of the original crime. When the shooter had to stand before the court for a bond hearing, the family members of the victims were allowed to address him face-to-face. Now, I don't know if that's the norm or not, but they were allowed to speak to him directly. Now, many of us would think that the family had every right to call for this man's life, to yell at him in anger and outrage and disgust. Based on the crime that he committed, we wouldn't really be upset if they did those things to him. But I want you to listen to the words that came from their mouths that very day. Nadine Collier, the daughter of one of the victims, 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said, quote, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. A relative of Myra Thompson, one of the victims, said, quote, I would just like him to know that, to say the same thing that was just said. I forgive him, and my family forgives him. But we would like him to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one that matters most, Christ, so that he can change him and change your way, so that no matter what happens to you, you will be okay. Felicia Sanders, the mother of... Taiwanza Sanders said, We welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with welcome arms. You have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber of my body hurts, and I'll never, I'll never be the same. 
Tawanza Sanders was my son, but Tawanza Sanders was my hero. Tawanza was my hero. May God have mercy on you. And if you would read the comments below this article as found in the Washington Post that were listed under this article, it is proof that when we and the world see mercy displayed like this, that none of us doesn't just stand in awe and marvel. One person said, I stand in awe of these fine folks to forgive. Another said, good people living the Christian life. And yet another said, I am not religious, but I stand in awe today of the compassion that these victims have shown today. But even as we read and we hear the words from these family members ourselves, it causes us to step back and wonder in amazement at these powerful, powerful words of mercy and forgiveness. Because if we put ourselves in that situation, such as that, God forbid, if we were ever confronted with a situation such as that, we wonder if we could even do the same, could we? But mercy for the Christian is not an optional exercise. Mercy is not something that we can take or leave because to show mercy is to imitate our God who is more than abundantly merciful to us. In Luke 6.36, Jesus commanded that we are to be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 145.8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. James 5.11, You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We are commanded to be merciful for the very reason that God is merciful to us. Paul was keenly aware of this when he wrote in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he has considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And beloved, I can't help but read that and just want to just argue with Paul. Yet for this reason, verse 16, I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And so this lesson that Jesus is going to teach the disciples and us this morning is a very important lesson in mercy. But let's look at our text this morning. Let's watch this lesson unfold. In verse 51 it says, When the days were approaching for his ascension... He was determined to go to Jerusalem. So first of all, he uses this transition here that says, when the days were approaching. And this is just to signify that an indefinite period of time had happened between the previous verses of 46 through 50. But Luke then uses this very peculiar word here that says for his ascension. It's analympsis in the Greeks. 
Now, this is the only place in the entire New Testament that this word is used, and it literally means a lifting up or a taking up. So the days were approaching for his lifting up, you could say, as another translation. Now, some people argue that his lifting up was his being lifted up on the cross, right? John 3.14 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But the word that John uses there for lifted up is hupsao. It's different than the one that Luke uses. John's use of the word also can mean exalted or raised to the summit of opulence. But Luke probably was looking back at history, meaning that something a little bit more than just a a lifting up on the cross, because notice that it does not say that the days were approaching for his death. It doesn't say that days were approaching for his crucifixion. He could have very easily just stopped there. But Luke knew that the cross was merely a stepping stone for Christ, if you will. Because remember, as Luke is writing Luke and then Acts, Luke is going to get very personal, personal with us from Acts chapter 16 on, where he transfers from the third person to the first person pronouns after the Macedonian call. He's going to start saying I and we and I, right? But Luke uses the verb form of this same word, which is analembano, in several passages that indicates that he was probably referring to a fuller understanding of Jesus being lifted up beyond the cross and into glory. For example, in Acts 1.11, he uses the word, he says, they also said, the angels here, men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up, or on a lambano, from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so Luke uses the noun form of the word, probably in order to show us a little bit more fullness of Jesus' saving work. Because the cross was not his final destination. The crucifixion was not the end, but only part of his saving and consummating work because he's moving from here forward, not only to the cross, but to his resurrection from the dead and then the glory that would follow. But then in verse 51, it says that he was determined to go to Jerusalem. It means he was absolutely dead set on going there. He was immovable. He was resolute. He was firmly established in the fact that he was completely fixed on going to Jerusalem and doing everything that was necessary for us for our salvation. And he knew very well all that was set before him. Some people try to say that the the cross was an accident. It, It wasn't supposed to happen. But this is the farthest thing from the truth because this didn't catch him off guard. He knew exactly what was coming. We already saw that. We got a glimpse of that back in verse 22 and in verse 44 of chapter 9. He knew what was coming. The betrayal, the false arrest, the unjust trial, the abuse of the soldiers, the scourgings, being spat upon, stripped naked, the crown of thorns crushed down onto his head, the nails driven into his hands and feet, the spear driven into his side, and the agony of trying to breathe while hanging on a cross. And why would he willingly do that? Why would he voluntarily head to Jerusalem and endure all of that? In a word, You could say joy, pure 
joy. Because with joy, he would perfectly obey the Father, even unto death. With joy, he would redeem us and thus bring many sons and daughters to glory, to the praise and glory of his Father. With joy, he would conquer Satan and render him powerless over death. With joy, he would cancel out the certificate of debt with its decrees against us, and he would nail it to the cross. And with joy, he would perfectly satisfy the righteous requirements of the law and thus be a propitiation for our sin. And we could go on and on and on. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was with pure joy that Jesus would be willing to head to Jerusalem, to suffer and to die as the only way that undeserving sinners like you and me could receive divine mercy. Then in verse 52 and verse 53 sets up the conflict. It says in verse 52, And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Now, I want to give you just a a brief little background about the Samaritans here. If you recall, Samaria was that region between Galilee and Judea, and it was avoided by the Jews for the most part. Now, all of this was birthed when the northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The Assyrians came in, sacked the place, destroyed all the cities, and then they deported a large portion of the Jews. But some of the Jews that were remaining and left behind at that time began to intermarry with pagan wives. And as a result, they were viewed as a mixed race of Jews because of this. Now you might think, now why is that so bad? Why why is intermarrying a different nation or a different race bad? The reason is, is because it brought in their false pagan religious systems with them, and they began to become syncretistic. That means they they blended their Jewish religious history with idol worship and all those types of things. So they stopped worshiping the one true God of Israel, and they started worshiping idols. Judah, which was uh, was where the temple lay in Jerusalem, would fall at about 586 B.C. at the hands of the Babylonians. Now, when Ezra and Nehemiah, they returned, they came back to rebuild that temple sometime in around 455 B.C., the Samaritans came down and offered to help, but they were flatly rejected and thus further escalating the animosity. You can read all about that if you'd like in Nehemiah chapter 4. But this led the Samaritans to eventually set up their own place of worship by building a temple at the Mount Gerizim. There's the two twin mountains, Gerizim and I believe Ebal is the other one. And so they made their own house of worship. This is going to be that same mountain when Jesus confronts that Samaritan woman and she says, our fathers used to worship on this mountain, right? From John chapter 4. So they built their own temple. They built their own place of worship. But during the Maccabean revolt, a man by the name of John Hycranus would destroy the Samaritan temple during the intertestamental period. 
Even the distinctions in what the Samaritans believed and practiced was so distinct that they only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament, the five books of Moses, was the authoritative word of God. And so it would go on and on and on. It got so bad that the Jews would not stop and try to eat anywhere in Samaria because, number one, no one would be hospitable to them. Because, and then it was downright dangerous for a Jewish traveler to go through there because you might get murdered. Some sought to avoid Samaria altogether, and they crossed the Jordan River. They went up on the, uh, the east coast of there, and then they, as soon as they got north into Galilee, they would cross back and totally avoid Samaria. And the Jews even retaliated in the synagogues by publicly cursing the Samaritans and offering prayers that they might not enter eternal life. If you've ever read John chapter 8 and verse 48, one of the insults that they try to hear, hurl at Jesus, they say, you have a demon and you are a Samaritan. It was an ad hominem attack, right? Century upon century of hostility and mistrust just continued to drive the wedge of hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. So as Jesus and his entourage are making their way down to Jerusalem, he sends them into a town in Samaria to make arrangements for food and lodging. He's willing to go into an area that the religious leaders of the day would just absolutely try to avoid. But the Samarians flat out reject him. They tell him, no way, we don't want you here. Go away. And the reason is Luke gives us here in verse 53 where it says, because he was traveling to Jerusalem. It wasn't a rejection of him personally, because they didn't really know anything about him. They didn't have the internet to to get all this information, right? They had never seen his miracles. They had never heard of his divine teaching. They had no idea that the king of glory was about to come into their midst. But they weren't even saying that they didn't want him because he was Jewish. But it was only because of where he was going. The place they rejected as the central place of worship, Jerusalem. They hated Jerusalem so much so that even during the New Testament times, some Samaritans snuck into the temple and they laid body parts of human remains in their temple as an attack upon the Jews. This makes the Hatfields and the McCoys look like a dance party or something. This is a whole nother level. But there was just absolute hatred and vitriol between the Jews and Samaritans. And they tell Jesus, go away. Find somewhere else to go and stay. The last thing they want to do is help him and aid him in getting to Jerusalem. So then in verse 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, if we would look at this in the positive light, We could see James and John taking this as an insult to their master, couldn't we? In the best case scenario, we could look at this and say they they must have absolute faith in Jesus to be able to ask him for such a request as fire from heaven. But why would they even think of such a thing to ask Jesus to incinerate these Samaritans? Why would he even ask that? Well, fire from heaven is not without precedence in the Bible. In 2 Kings chapter 1, King Ahaziah sent a company of 50 men to go arrest the prophet Elijah. But Elijah came down and he asked for fire from heaven and it consumed them. He said, if I am a man of God, let 
fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And it did. So King Ahaziah said, all right, next 50, my expendable Star Trek crewman, go in there and get Elijah, right? And so once again, Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and they are dead. They're consumed by the fire. Finally, the third commander of the third group gets a little clue and says, hmm, there's 100 people dead. He gets a little wise. So he comes begging Elijah, please do not destroy us by fire and me and my men, right? Save our lives and please come with us willingly. And then Elijah did. And he went and proclaimed judgment to King Ahaziah. And so remember that James and John... They had just come down from that Mount of Transfiguration, right? And they saw who? Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, right? They saw Jesus in all his glory, and they got to see the law and the prophets. And so with Elijah being fresh in their minds, you might say they had a a heightened Elijah consciousness or whatever. They thought to themselves, hey, let's do what Elijah did, right? Let's let fire consume the enemies of the Lord. But this was not the same situation as Elijah's. King Ahaziah was clearly rejecting God. But the Samaritans were simply returning the rejection that they've experienced by the Jews. But also certainly as we look at this in a negative light, James and John were forgetting the clear teaching that Jesus gave them back in Luke chapter 6, 27, when he said, But I say to you who hear... Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Has there been someone in your life that has uh, mistreated you or or cursed you or rejected you? Maybe there's been someone that's hurt your loved one in some way and that you would just love to see them just go away. You may not have necessarily called down fire from heaven, But in your own way, you may have thought to yourself, boy, it would really be better if that person no longer existed. I know I have struggled with this greatly over the last couple years in many different ways. And I just have to continually say, Lord, you're in charge, you're just, and I am not. But the only fire from heaven that we as followers of Jesus Christ should be calling down on someone is the fires of the Holy Spirit. We should be calling fires of regeneration. It doesn't mean that we're tolerating sin. It doesn't mean we take a passive stance when somebody is harming us or our loved ones. And it doesn't mean that we won't exercise church discipline if necessary. But the goal of all of our interactions and the thrust of all that we should do is for a right and restored relationship with God. If our Lord, who was blameless and holy and innocent, could hang upon a cross and look down at His executioners and cry out to them, Father, forgive them, can we not also do the same for the trivial injustices that have happened to us? So in verse 55, he says, But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Now, I want you to notice there, if you have in your text of the New American Standard, I think the New King James has it also, you should have some brackets 
there in your text. And that just simply means that those words are not in every single manuscript, some of the older manuscripts. It's a, it's a process that's called textual criticism, right? I think it's also found in John 7 and into uh, chapter 8 through 11. They have the same brackets. But it's basically textual criticism is a, just a method that we try to determine what the original writing said. We don't have the original writings of Luke. So imagine if we had 4,000 copies of Luke chapter 9 scattered throughout here. We're trying to find what's the original. And some of the older manuscripts that they're finding have this written down in them, whereas some of the newer ones may not. And so those words may have been added by a scribe to clarify meaning during the copying process, and he could have very simply just borrowed the principle from Luke 19.10 or something like that. But the thrust that we need to focus on is that Jesus rebukes them. Today was not the day of judgment for this village, but today was a day of mercy because Jesus was on a mission of mercy. Even though the Samaritans were guilty of being inhospitable and and discourteous, they did not deserve annihilation. And I believe it's in Luke chapter 8 where uh, Philip actually goes into the villages of Samaria preaching the gospel with much success. He came to save men's lives and not destroy them. And if there has ever been a text that has been largely ignored by the church through the annals of church history, it probably has to be this one. Whenever the church has wielded the sword with supposed divine intentions, good has never came about. From the Inquisition to the Crusade, which really started out being an attempt to slow the violent progression and expansion of Islam that turned into a convert-or-die campaign, to the persecution of the Anabaptists by the Reformers over the issue of infant baptism, pronouncing judgment by death was never meant for the church age. We are to confront sin. We are to call for people to repent. We are never to tolerate sin, but we must demonstrate the same mercy to the lost that Jesus did, and we leave the final judgment to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says that, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The greatest, the most lasting, The most radical change that we can ever help bring about will never come through politics or governmental policies. It will never come from tanks and bombs and missiles. It will never come through riots and civil disobedience, but it will only come about through the gospel and by prayer. Telling people to take down that Confederate flag is not going to take away the racism that resides within their heart. Even showing people the videos of those butchers of Planned Parenthood hasn't even convinced some of the most hardened advocates of abortion that this is wicked and evil all the way up to our highest elected official in this land. Those people need a heart transplant. What they need is to have their minds transformed by the power of the gospel. 
And they're never going to understand that racism is wrong and that abortion is wrong unless they have the eyes of their heart open by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And they start to see that children are precious in the sight of God and that they are uniquely created in His image regardless of what color they are and regardless if they have a disability. That requires us to go tell them. That requires us to go out into our workplaces and and the places that we shop and the places that we do business with, and we have to share the gospel. And so this morning, it begs the question, how is your engagement with people who aren't like you? Just like John and James had a deep-seated resentment against these Samaritans, we all tend to have some sort of resentment towards others that aren't exactly like us. Homeschool versus private school versus public school, Republican versus Democrat, black versus white versus Latino versus Asian, rich versus poor. It is so easy to get along with those like ourselves and have our circle of friends so tight that anyone who disagrees is not allowed to come in. We are commanded to be merciful even to those who aren't like us, by sharing the gospel, because without it, we will not receive mercy ourselves. James 2.13 says, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So how is your engagement with the gospel of those who aren't like you? Let's pray. Father, I'm very well aware that the reason there could be an evangelistic chill in the pews is because there is an evangelistic iceberg in the pulpit. And so, God, I just pray for myself and for us as a body that we would have a zeal for your gospel, even to those who don't look like us and act like us, that we might be white hot for the gospel, that we might care for their hearts to be transformed by your power. God, we just pray that we would be hands and feet and your mouthpiece in this world, that we might go forth and call men and women to Repent and believe in your Son. God, we want to honor you in this very thing. Give us the strength and the boldness and the courage to do so. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.